We're still in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus most of this year. We'll take a break this summer, and then we'll uh, end right before Advent, but we'll spend most of our year going through the book of Exodus, and we come today to chapter 3, verses 11 through 22. Give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us so we have it today. We've heard it read, and Lord, we come to you now and ask that you would give us more than human understanding. Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things? Would you, oh God, by your spirit, the spirit of truth, would you take our hearts and mold them and make them, shape them, so that we might bring glory and honor unto you God, would you transform our minds, change our wills, Lord, help us to walk in straight paths for you and for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, encourage your people, strengthen them, build them up, help them, oh God, and help me, protect me from error, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, oh God, you are my rock and my Redeemer, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. R.C. Sproul, the noted 
pastor and theologian, R.C. Sproul, he once shared about an encounter he had with a, a student named Mary. I don't think it's a real name. It's the name he gave her uh, for this account. But this student named Mary, and he knew Mary because she was in his class. He was teaching a college course on the names of God. Well, one day, Mary walked into class in a very awkward way. Uh, she was waving her hand around as she walked, so everyone would notice the bright and dazzling diamond ring on her left hand. Just before Dr. Sproul started the class, he asked, he obliged, Mary, did you get engaged? Pointing to a man in the back of the room, she said, yes, to John, right there. Dr. Sproul never missed a teaching opportunity, so he seized it. He said, ah, so since you're going to marry him, is it safe to say that you love him? Why, yes, of course, she said. I, I love him. Well, Dr. Sproul continued to question her. Well, why do you love him? Because he's so handsome. Dr. Sproul said, yeah, he is. But look at Bill right here in the front row. He's a good-looking guy. Why not him? Well, she answered, uh, he's handsome. John is more handsome, and he's very athletic. Sproul said, yeah, he, he's, he's good, all right. But Bill here is the captain of the basketball team. Mary was starting to get frustrated. <laughs> yeah, but, but John is so intelligent. Sproul says, well, so is Bill. In fact, he's probably going to be the class valedictorian. Mary, there must be something else about John that distinguishes him from Bill in your eyes. Come on, Mary, there has to be something unique about him, something that causes you to have such great affection that you're willing to marry him. What is it about John that makes you love him so much? Well, now Mary's visibly upset, right? And so stumbling over her words, she says, I love him because... I love him because he's John. I love him because he's John. I love John, not Bill. I love John. You can pack a lot into a name, can't you? You can put a lot of stuff into a name. And while Shakespeare may have famously written that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, the assertion that names are things indifferent does not hold up when we come to the Bible's revelation of God's name and what that name conveys to its people. Ask the people of God why they love their God. Ask the people of God to tell them what they love about their God. And they may say a lot, but finally, you know what they're going to say? Because he's God. Because he's Yahweh. Because he is, I am. In our passage this morning, God gives his name to Moses. And in so doing, in giving his name to Moses, God reveals five things. Five things about the excellency of his nature and the perfection of his character. Five things that not only anchor Moses to God's presence and God's promises, but five things that anchor us to his presence and to his promises for us as well. So I've made it clear, five things 
today. Five things. So let's begin with the first. The first thing revealed about God and his name, it's this. He is the personal God. God is the personal God. One of the most striking aspects of the account before us in Exodus 3, actually all of Exodus 3, is the very fact that God even reveals himself to Moses. That should be the thing that strikes us the most. God has appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And he's called him. He's called him to be his mediator. He's called Moses to be his prophet. He's called Moses to be his deliverer. But Moses, the failed prince, Moses, the murderous fugitive, Moses, the lowly shepherd, Moses is clearly overwhelmed by this. Last week, we saw how he asked God, do you remember? Who am I? Who am I to do this? And now in this passage, notice what he's asking. Who are you? Who am I? Now it's, who are you? He poses this question in verse 13. Look, what shall I say to the people when they ask for your name? This has been an understood question in this day. People had different gods, and it was really important to know the name of your God. So here's Moses, whether he's just forgetful or God's leading him to reveal something amazing about himself. He asks them, what's your name? You can almost feel and feel the anxiety of Moses here. The anxiety's thick. Almost as thick as his audacity. I mean, after all, who's Moses talking to? He's talking to the holy God of the universe, and he's asking him for his calling card. But I want you to notice the love and the patience of God. Notice the love and the patience of God. God answers him. He, he condescends to Moses so that he can uh, further the redemption of his people. So in this act of intimacy and amazing self-revelation, God tells him his name in verse 14. I am who I am. That name speaks volumes about who God is. But before we get to that, let's take a moment to enjoy the wonder of just those words. Just this act. You see, God could have chastised Moses, couldn't he? God could have shamed Moses. Well, Moses says, who are you? He could have been like, who are you? I can't do the James Earl Jones voice. Or whatever. You know, but who are you to talk back to me? I don't have a deep voice. It doesn't work. God could have said, who are you? God could have chastised him. He could have shamed him. How dare you ask me my name? Don't you know who I am? Didn't you learn about me upon the breast of your mother? Did you not learn about me? Why are you asking me this question? God doesn't do that. Instead, God reveals himself to Moses. And he does so in a very personal way. God knows that the only way that we can know anything about him is if he reveals it to us. Creation itself may make us know that there is a God, but only personal, divine revelation will allow us to truly know him. And thankfully, and we see it on display in this passage, God delights to be known by his people. 
So God both willingly and joyfully reveals his name. He reveals his very self to Moses because he is more than just a God. He is the God, the only God, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his people, the God who loves his people so much that he's gonna set them free from their bondage. God is not some far off unknown deity who hides in shadows and stars. He's not some idol carved in wood or or made from stone. No, God is the one true God who draws near and makes himself known. He condescends to Moses and makes himself known. God is the personal God. That's the first thing. The second thing revealed about God and his name is found in the very name itself, and it's this. Second thing is he is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. God gives his name to Moses using a form of the Hebrew verb to be. It's the verb to be. He uses a form of that. And in the original Hebrew, it's just four consonants. So in the original language, it's just four consonants. You may not know this, but ancient Hebrew in its original writing did not write vowels. It was just consonants. It's a consonantal written language. The vowels were added later to help people understand. But it was a spoken language primarily, so people knew the words by hearing the words. So when they saw the consonants, they heard them. Have you ever done those little puzzles that show up on social media? You know, you're really smart if you can read this, and they just take all the vowels out, and you're like, wow, I'm super smart. People have been doing that forever, okay? So... It's good, though. I don't mean to make you feel bad. So feel good. But that's kind of that's what that language is like, okay? So God uses this, Y-H-W-H is how we would transliter- transliterate that to English. So it's often translated in your Bibles as Lord. So anytime you see Lord in all caps, that's where this name is used, the divine name of God. And we'll spend several weeks talking about this. You'll also see it maybe if you use the King James or the New King James as Jehovah, right? Jehovah is where that comes from. Yahweh, as I have said, uh, many others that people have tried to give pronunciation to this, or just I am. You see it in the Bible as I am. So God says his name is I am who I am. And the human part of us is like, well, thanks for clearing that up. Right? Your name is a verb. <laughs> I am who I am. What does it mean? Well, it means that he is the God who had no beginning and who has no end. It means that he is the God who is self-sufficient and self-determined. God owes his existence to no one, to nothing other than himself. He's saying, I am the God who is. Theologians have a word for this, as we typically do. It's called the aseity of God, the aseity of God. This one little word, aseity, captures all the glory of the perfection of God's being in one little word. You see, God was not created by anyone or anything. Neither did God create himself. No, what makes God different from us And from all the rest of creation is that God purely exists. God exists by his own power. He is eternally self-existent. 
And we're all like, yep, got it. I read about that somewhere, right? This is a tough one. Uh, This truth has caused many people to stumble. Unbelievers, even Christians. People have put themselves in myriads of philosophical and theological pretzel twists trying to wrap their minds around it. And we certainly don't have time to consider all those arguments debated throughout the centuries. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, Let's get lunch or coffee or something and talk more about it. I'd be happy to. We don't have time this morning. So what I want us to do is I want us to embrace the fact that encompassed in this name, in this name I am, this name is a testimony, an important testimony to the people in the original audience and also to us. It's an important testimony to the fact that God is eternal. It's a testimony that God is not dependent upon anything else for his existence. Philosophers might say, God is a necessary being. Everything else in creation is dependent upon him. Even the Greek philosophers said, and quoted by Paul, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's because he is eternal. He alone possesses both the substance of immortality and the power to grant that immortality to anyone else. God and God alone is the great I am. He is the eternal God. That's two. Let's go on to three. The third thing revealed about God and his name is tied to God's own explanation of his name. Specifically, what he says in verse 15. Look there, he says, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, the third thing is this God is the omnipresent God. Omni meaning all, He is the all present God. So, God is not only the God who is, but He is the God who is with His people. You get that? He's not just the God who is, but he's the God who is with his people. God has entered into a relationship with his people. And God is reminding them that he has not forgotten about them. We've highlighted this the past two weeks, have we not? God heard the people's cries. God has seen the people in their sufferings. And God surely knows them and he does not forget them. We've heard that already. But look at verse 16. He emphasizes it again. Look there with me. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction. You see, by referencing the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by revealing that he has been watching over them all these years, God is reminding both Moses and the people that he is the God who's always been there. He's the God who was present with Noah during the flood. He's the God who was present with Abraham when he took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. He's the God who was with Joseph while he was imprisoned in Egypt. He's the God who was present in every other situation between those, 
all the time. He's been with his people. God is assuring and comforting Moses and the people that he always has been, that he is even now historically in this time period, and he will always be with them. And though he may uh, reveal himself in mighty ways at times, like he does here at the burning bush and like he will continue to do throughout redemptive history, he may reveal himself in mighty ways it does not eclipse the reality of his always seeing, his always hearing, his always knowing and remembering presence with his people. We like to live in the wows, don't we? We forget that God is always with us, always. Peaks, valleys, even in the mundane, he's always with us. God is the all-present Omnipresent God. This omnipresence is further strengthened in the fourth thing revealed about God in his name. And that's this. Four, God is the promise-keeping God. God is the promise-keeping God. When he gives his name to Moses, I want you to notice that God anchors that name. He anchors his name in covenantal, and historical realities. What I mean when I say that is that God associates his name with his covenant promises and with his mighty acts in history, right? God wants Moses to know, God wants his people to know that he is the God who keeps his promises. So look in verse 16 and 17, God actually gives Moses. What am I to say? Okay, here's what you're to say. God gives Moses a script, to use when he's speaking to the people. And everything in this script is grounded in history and covenant. The history is shown when he calls himself the God of your fathers, in the, the history of your people. I'm God of them just as I am God of you. And he also grounds it in covenant because he says, I promise, I promise that I will bring you up. I promise. You see, this idea of deliverance, this promise of deliverance from bondage should not be new to the Hebrew people. This should not be new. God had already told Abraham back in Genesis 15, 12 and 13, you can go back and look. Now, they didn't have Genesis written for them in front of them at this time, but they were an oral people. They talked about this all the time. They should have known. This is God's promise to them. That his descendants, Abraham was told, your descendants would be enslaved for 400 years. And then he continues in 1514 to promise that he's going to deliver them. So for 400 years, you're going to go and suffer. You're going to be a stranger in this land. You're going to be enslaved. But I promise I'm going to bring you up out of it. God's repeating that now. And it's not the first time it's been repeated. We spent time going through the life of Joseph. You may remember in Genesis 46, God reminded Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to take your whole family down and live in Egypt. I told Abraham that I'd bring you down there and I'll bring you back. It's grounded in God's promises. God had promised to bring his people back. He said, I'll bring you back to Canaan. Canaan is the land of all these people groups that we see here. And Moses, 
Moses is standing here and he's being enlisted. He's being called. You're the human agent through which God would fulfill that promise. So God's name, Yahweh, is his covenant name. That's why we call it his covenant name. It's a name given to remind his people, to remind us that he is the God that acts in history in order to keep his covenant promises. So in so much as he is always with them, because he is always with them, he's omnipresent, but he's with them with a purpose. He's with them to keep his promises to them. He's not just watching to see how they're going to react so he can counter-react. No. Like a good shepherd, God is leading them. Exactly. He's taking them through his great plan of redemption. And he's keeping every single promise. Every single promise. So Moses, encountering God here at the burning bush, take us back, just remember where we're at. It's been revealed to him that the eternal promise-keeping God would always be present with him. But there's even more comfort to be found in God's name. And this is gonna lead us to that fifth and final thing that's revealed about God here. And that is that God is the omnipotent God. Again, the word omni comes there, potent, all-powerful. God is the all-powerful God. God wants Moses to know that he has the power to fulfill his promise. This is important because where's Moses being called to? Being called to go stand in front of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. Would you be nervous about that? Especially given your history, maybe somebody will remember that you're that murderer. You're gonna go stand before Pharaoh. You're gonna stand before your people. You're gonna stand before Pharaoh. And you're gonna say, let my people go. What do you think God wants him to know? I got this. I am more powerful than Pharaoh. The king's heart is like a stream of water in my hand. I turn it to and fro where I desire. God is more powerful than Pharaoh. He wants Moses to know that. He wants him to know and to understand it. So God tells Moses what's gonna happen. He tells him right up front. In verses 18 through 19, God tells him how both the people of Israel and how Pharaoh will respond to him. Uh, God's showing there, if you want to know this, it's also his omniscience, right? He's all-knowing. He shows him that. Uh, But in verse 20, he reveals his power over all things. He reveals his omnipotence. God says that I will stretch out my hand against the Egyptians. God says, I will strike Egypt to perform wonders among them. Yahweh, the great I am, will himself, by his own power, he will deliver his people. And we'll get to it later, but I love that part where the people are on the run, away from Pharaoh, they're a long distance away, and they think they're gonna get away, and God says, turn around and go back towards them. Remember this when we get to it. Because I want you to be still, because I want you to see what my powerful, mighty hand is gonna do. God wants us to know his power. He wants us to know that. So God's name, 
God's name, Yahweh, is a name of power. And so Moses, the man standing before the burning bush, what's he going to do? What does he have to bring? All he has to bring is his weakness. All he has to offer is his weakness and his absolute dependence upon God's power. Moses might be a failed prince. He might be a murderous fugitive. He might be a lowly shepherd, but he's God's chosen man for the task. Doesn't God like to do that? He chooses the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. Moses is God's chosen man. God's gonna do all that he's promised to do and he's gonna delight to show his power through the weakness of Moses. God is the omnipotent God. So what's in a name? A lot, right? A lot. As we've seen from our text this morning, packed into this revelation of God's name, uh, Yahweh, there's five important things about him. And if you notice, I kind of snuck in a six because we could have talked about omniscience. He's personal. God is the personal God who reveals himself to his people. He's the eternal God. He's the omnipresent God. He's the the promise-keeping covenant God. And he's the omnipotent God. We have to think about where we are. I mean, we're on this side, the other side of the Exodus, are we not? That's already happened. That's in the past. In fact, that's not the only Exodus we're on the other side of. We're on the other side of the Exodus from sin that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about it. We hold in our very hands and in our very hearts an even fuller revelation of Yahweh, the great I am. For I am left the glories of heaven and he took on flesh to live among us and he he suffered in our place for us. Yet he rose again in victory and in power over sin and death for us. For our Savior, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, is himself the great I am. In fact, he said so himself. He said so himself. Turn with me to John 8. We're wrapping up here. John 8, verses 56 through 59 is what I'm looking at. Uh, you're, You're likely... Uh, familiar with the I am statements of Jesus. You know, the I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. We did one earlier, I am the way. This one often gets overlooked. Look with me at 56 through 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced, this is Jesus speaking, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus here explicitly identifies himself as Yahweh, as I am. You know, those people who say, Jesus never claimed to be divine, take him to this passage and tell him the history of this. 
And when they don't believe you, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying, I was, you know, I'm eternal, I'm everywhere. No, how did they respond to him? How did they respond? They picked up stones to stone him. That's what you do to blasphemers. That's what you do to people who claim to be God. Before Abraham was, Yahweh, I am. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is the very real and personal revelation of God to us. In him and through him, we not only know of God's love and his mercy and his grace and all his other attributes, but we actually know God himself. We get to be in a relationship with God. And we know that this relationship is gonna extend far beyond the days of this life. We know it's gonna go all the way into eternity. Jesus has delivered us from the curse of sin and death. And he secured our entrance into heaven where we're gonna spend all eternity with him in the presence of the Father. But listen, our hope is not just in that day. Our hope is in today, in each and every day. Why? Because Jesus sent his spirit into our hearts and we can be absolutely certain that he's present with us. If you're a Christian, Jesus is present with you. He's in your heart by his Holy Spirit. In a world that is full of so much loneliness and so much despair. And yes, even as Christians, we experience that. But we can find comfort in knowing that Jesus hasn't left us. He hasn't forsaken us. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. He did say, sure, I've got to leave. But I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll not leave you as orphans. The Spirit will come to you. And he did it. And while we also live in a world that constantly overpromises and underdelivers, we can be absolutely certain that Jesus will never break one of his promises to us. Never. For we're told in 2 Corinthians 1:20, what? All the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. Not one word of his will ever fail. Not one word will ever fail. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God never fails. Amen and amen. Be comforted and encouraged by that.